Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Stories of Briscoe and Bradshaw. I would be Bradshaw. That would be the Chickasaw native and the Chickasaw Hall of Famer, Oklahoma's favorite son, Mr. Gerald Briscoe. And we have got the first of first, the first on this show, but also the first woman on her varsity wrestling team. She also is the New York State Fair women's champion, Northeast women's champion, and the first person to enter the women's Royal Rumble and the men's Royal Rumble. The youngest person, female, to go into the Hall of Fame after her career was over, also the George Dragos Luthez Hall of Fame, and the first married couple for both to be inducted in the Hall of Fame with her and her husband, Adam Copeland. She is Miss Beth Phoenix. Beth, welcome to the show. Wow, John. When my kids are complaining about how uncool I am, can you give them that rundown, please? (laughs) Absolutely. Once upon a time, your mom was kind of cool. <laughs> That's right. And I, and I, and I forgot to mention, because we're not exactly sure, but we think you're the first full-time commentator for, uh, at least for WWE on the main show. I know that's right, but Mr. Briscoe was talking earlier about one Barbara Clary down back in the day, back in Florida. So we did a little research on this. So I left that out because that's a little bit fuzzy. Yeah, I, I would, I'm not sure. Renee Paquette was there on Raw. She was. So I don't know, uh, I don't know how, who's first or how that times out, but um, I know that uh, I had done quite, a, we were doing kind of the math on how many episodes of NXT I ended up doing. Um, and I, I got ranked pretty high up there on the list of uh, consistent NXT commentators. So I'll take that as a feather in my cap because I loved working at NXT. Well, if, if you're not the first of that, you were the first in your high school days to, uh, for, for a lady to go out for, for amateur wrestling and John, it's, it's not like it now, nowadays when a girl goes out, it's really popular because the women's wrestling is probably the fastest growing high school sport in the United States of America. The scholarship opportunities for young women out there, if they go out for, for wrestling when they're, when they're really young and learn the skill like Beth did and place in some of these tournaments, the opportunity for scholarships out there is just tremendous for young women now. And, uh, you know, I help out a coach here in uh, Florida here, and I, I talk to the women all the time because during my scouting days, 
I met so many of the coaches out there and they're always Briscoe. You see any girls, young ladies out there that can fit on our program. So they're out there. The opportunities are out there. And, but Beth is one of the very first, and especially in the state of New York, where we've had New York bell wrestlers on here. And we, we always talk about how tough it is in the New York state because it's one classification there. And you, you going out when at the time frame that you, you went out there, you know, and the, it was not near, now it's not unusual to see a bunch of girls out, but you were, you were probably one of the first and one, probably one, very few on your team and probably in your county and section too, right? Yeah, um, I was the first and only, and I think I was for quite a while um, in our section, but I want to bring up a name. Um, Sally Roberts works with an organization called Wrestle Like a Girl, and um, she's done great work for, I would say like the last eight to 10 years, um, this has really been kind of a movement. She's a former very successful amateur wrestler herself. And um, she has been working to get women's wrestling sanctioned in every state. So this has been kind of like a long process and really, you know, the base, not only is, do we love wrestling, it's a competitive sport, team building, confidence building. There's like so much, so much to talk about with what the fabulous things that it can provide for young students. But the reality is money the money, you know, getting scholarships, getting opportunities for kids to, for young ladies to be able to attend college on scholarship. And so if, if women's wrestling as a sport's not sanctioned in your state, those opportunities aren't available in your state, your state college. So um, those types of organizations, the work that Sally does lobbying in several states, you know, and she's, she's got a lot of progress and I haven't checked on it recently to see how far we've come, but state by state doing the grunt work. And um, it's, it really makes a difference in so many of these young ladies' lives because then there's a potential to attend a school that they may not have had the opportunity to attend before. You know, that these pathways were available for young men all the time. And they, you know, if you were gifted with this skill to, to succeed in amateur wrestling, then there was a pathway to open a door to college and get an, a, you know, your education and open doors to your future. Not just the Olympics, not just in the sports realm, but in your educational side of things. And so um, it's been wonderful to see the sport grow for young ladies. I actually just took a trip back to Elmira, New York, my hometown, and Elmira College has a, a fledgling girls wrestling program, women's wrestling program now. And so the same thing, there's money now available for these young women to be able to come and take advantage of their athletic skill and how much they love wrestling and open doors for their futures. So it was really cool to go and check in on the team and then also see how, how much the women have progressed, you know, uh, athletically. Cause like when I started, there was a few of us that and I, I have no problem just saying like how unathletic I was as a, as a beginner uh, wrestler in high school and other sports that I played. It took me a long time to get my legs and to figure out what I was doing. Um, but now, I mean, you see these like women that are so skilled. They've been doing it since they were little. They've been inspired um, by watching athletes that came before them. And it's just been really cool to see this progression and evolution, for lack of a better word, of um, of athletes, of, of the skill level that they have. Speaking of being inspired, I, I know it's kind of, but I, I felt the same way, uh, you know, when I when I started out, I felt I had to go out for, for amateur wrestling because Danny Hodge was my hero and Danny was such a great amateur. I felt like and I wanted to be a pro like Danny, so I felt like I had to go out for wrestling. And that's one of the... That's one of my influences. That who who was who were you watching that, that kind of put that thought in your mind? If I want to be a, a pro wrestler, I gotta I gotta go out for this. Yeah, I mean, it was it was the Hart family. It was Bret Hart, Owen Hart. For me, I was a pro wrestling fan, and I had the you know the 
the misinformation, the delusion, because there was no books written back then on how to right. do this. I didn't know anybody. I had no family in the business. I was literally a wrestling fan. So to me, the logic was amateur wrestling leads to pro wrestling. So, you know, then I started kind of scoping out the amateur wrestling scene and seeing what it was as a sport. And I saw, well, there, this, there must be a logical progression between mat wrestling and learning these skills and the grappling, and then how that translates eventually to jumping off the top rope. So that was, that was my thought process. At little did I know as I got more into it, um, how wrong I was. However, I will say, um, and I, I, I give this you know, speech to a lot of young people in the business that the skills and the foundation that you learn as an amateur wrestler, even if you, even if you don't you know, use the exact same moves in the ring, you know, in pro wrestling, you'll develop your own personality, but just the, the, um, the toughness, you know, the grit that you develop, um, in that sport will serve you well all through your pro wrestling career. Yeah. Beth, you know, anytime you have a path that, is, that a lot of people are going down, somebody blazed that trail, you blazed the trail for a lot of women in, in the amateur wrestling, but being first sometimes is tough. You know, they, they always say, you know, uh, settlers get the land, pioneers get the arrows. You know, so, somebody has to go out there first. You were first. And uh, sorry, Mr. Briscoe. I, uh, <laughs> anytime I can make a Native American reference, even incidentally, it's wonderful on Mr. Briscoe. We've had this rivalry. He's from Oklahoma. I'm from Texas. I'm a cowboy. He's a native. So this will never end. Not until we both die. I'm sensing this. I'm sensing this. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. So, but you were first, how was it at that time going out, being the only woman out there? Was it tough? Was it tough talking people into this? How did you get to make this happen? It was, I mean, I think initially, um, those that weren't a part of the team, um, you know, I was, I, I went to a private school, so, um, there were, it was very conservative. And so that, you know, um, kind of selling people on my thought that I want to do this in a competitive way. And I didn't have an ulterior motive. I wasn't attention seeking, although a lot of attention comes with a decision like that. Um, you know, I, I really knew from jump, like I had to kind of like block out the noise. Even my own family in the beginning was just like, this is not, this is not proper. You know, this is not what a young lady does. And um, I, I had to do a lot of proving myself. I feel like kind of above and beyond what um, most brand new wrestlers are to the sport just because um, I wanted to show that I was serious. So um, my thought was, I'll be the first one to get there. I'll be the last to leave. You know, I'll help clean the mats. I'll help set up. I'll sell popcorn, whatever it takes to like, you know, to show that I'm in it for the team. I was, you know, there supporting everybody else sitting right at the mat. And um, yeah, and then I knew also if I was going to have any shot in hell of uh, being able to stand, you know, toe to toe with a man or a young, a young man at that time, um, that I would have to put extra hours in the gym. And luckily my, my genetic line, we are from Poland. I'm the first and more American born citizen in my family. So my grandfather's a big Polish guy. We have got a lot of, you know, good genetics with in the weight department. So, um, I really took to lifting weights and kind of just like, um, you know, a caveman style lifting paint cans and just trying to learn, you know, learn how to build a physique that would be, that would give me the tools that I needed to kind of just at least hang. And that was kind of my mentality. Like I got beat all the time. I got destroyed in tournaments when I was in the boys team, but um, especially since at the weight class that I was wrestling at 152, um, the boys were, you know, they were muscled and bigger. I think that in the sport, when you're looking at the development of young men and young women, the girls that would wrestle in the, the lighter weight classes, 96 pounds, 
they had more of a shot because the the boys hadn't developed with, you know, they hadn't hit puberty yet. They hadn't really got their, you know, their man muscle yet. They're, they're still on their way. They're still growing. So I think that once you got into the higher weight classes, the boys were, were just physically stronger. And so, um, you know, I struggled a lot and lost a lot, but that really didn't deter me at all. Cause all I wanted to do was hang. I just wanted to be a part of it and, and be taken seriously. Yes. And I will say that my teammates were fabulous and I get the chance now because of the platform that I have to speak to a lot of young women that are in the sport or young, you know, uh, amateur athletes as well. And they'll, they'll tell me the same ex- experience when we're talking about like the, the pros and cons of being on the boys team. And, um, they'll, they'll tell me like, my teammates are great. My teammates are so supportive and they're so proud of me. And, um, and I, I had that experience too, even, even at the time period that I entered the sport. Well, being a pioneer like you was, the administration and your parents, were your parents totally behind it? Did you have any difficulty with the administration? The coaches saying, Beth, this is not the right thing for you to do. Go out for volleyball or something like that. Yeah, my coach was amazing. Our, I will say the administration, again, um, they they begrudgingly had to go along with it after I was committed and I said, I'm not going away. Um, and then I had to do, I had to complete like a physical fitness test to show I was fit to compete with the boys. So I can't even remember it was like a pu- couple pull-ups or whatever the norm, you know, you have to just do all these base things, run a mile within a certain time and just make sure I was physically fit. Um, but again, that was something that the boys didn't have to do. If they signed up for the wrestling team, you know, they just show up. Me, I had to go through some um, different you know, uh, processes <laughs> to get if there. If they had tested us for that, pull-ups and miles, we didn't, none of us would have ever played athletics. You'd still be running that mile. <laughs> I, I'm not a runner at all. I'm still in never, never been my forte. But that that day, I I uh, I ran my butt off because there was no way I was not hitting those times. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you, I don't mean to cut you off, Ben, but you you had to do a physical fitness test that the boys did not have to do. Mm-mm, no, I <laughs> and, and I'm I'm probably going to misspeak because I can't remember it was so long ago. But I want to say it was like Title Nine or Title Eleven. There was like Title Nine, yeah. Title nine, yeah, um, you know, a ruling that said they cannot deny you based on gender um, to be able to, if the, if the school did not have a girl's team, then they had to allow the girl, and this went for like lacrosse and other types of sports as well, they had to give the girl an opportunity to play on the boys team. That had, I feel like that uh, legislation had just come into effect in the late 90s, possibly, and I'm sorry if, I, if my history is wrong on that, but um, uh, yeah, so they had to let me at least try. And if I had failed a physical fitness test, then they could deny me just based on the, the fact that I wasn't fit enough um, is my recollection of all of that. But uh, luckily in my case, like I said, I, I was determined to <laughs> not let that hold me back. And, um, but yeah, I was so excited once they gave me the, the, the all clear, the, you know, the green light. And like I said, I showed up early and left late and uh and i was just ready to go my coach didn't treat me any different than any of the guys which i loved that's all i want yeah now now when, when, once you started there you, you made the team uh, the, the 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 young man that that you 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 defeated for the spot on the team there uh, was he harassed or anything like that because i know in our team because i've coached many many uh young ladies and women women come through our program here that you know the last thing a guy wants to do is get beat by a girl <laughs> And so, so when, when they do, I mean, the, the guy gets chastised and usually the girl, I mean, she's the hero of the team. Man. I know. And I hate that. I hate yeah. that. It yeah, terrible. Like, 
I, I hate that there's ridicule at all involved. Like, and that's where, you know, like I, I've had these discussions with how important it is to kind of build these programs for girls because it distracts away from the sport when we're, when we're trying to make this about, you know, like I said, ridicule should just never be involved in sports. It's not fair to the young man. And I, I remember we had a home meet and everybody was there. My parents were there. We had, you know, quite an audience and I, I ended up pinning and beating a boy and, um, and, you know, I, like, it was just, the cheers were great. And, and don't get me wrong. It was a time where we were wanting to progress. Right. So we were wanting to get, get more opportunities for women, but I did feel really bad because it shouldn't be at the expense of another athlete, of another yeah. young man. And yeah. I, I, I didn't know him and I, and I don't know, you know, if he ended up continuing to wrestle, but I certainly hope that that experience didn't kill his love for wrestling, yeah. you know? Yeah. So, um, I, and I say this a lot because I'm my, I'm married to a pro wrestler and, um, you know, I, I love that we're, we're growing, you know, and I love that women are getting, getting so much equality in wrestling, but I, I don't want to see that at the expense of so many wonderful men that have supported us. It's, yeah. it's, you know, I, I know along the way I had so many fabulous coaches, friends, you know, like I said, my husband himself is the biggest, you know, feminist you'll ever meet. <laughs> And, um, and I just, I, I don't like the, that girl power has to mean let's, let's, you know, put down men. I don't think that's necessary. But you know, Beth, it's not just uh, wrestling. You know, my, my wife has been on Wall Street, a very misogynistic world for, for years. And, and she's made an incredible name there, but she's still not considered equal. <laughs> but yes. to, to a lot of men who had much lesser accolades and much lesser mm -hmm. honors and much lesser resume, you know, it, it's getting better. It's getting much better. But it is. It's, it's all of society, you know, society is changing, which is a wonderful thing, but it's all of society that's kind of coming along from where it was, you know, 15, 20 years ago, which is, which is a good thing to see. It is. It's better. It's way better. You know, my grandmother used to tell me stories. She was, um, you know, she was an immigrant coming to this country and she worked as a seamstress and she would tell me stories how, you know, the women were sexual, her, sexually harassed and just, you know, at the time it was all acceptable. And so I, I feel like we were light years ahead of where we were. We can always go further, but you know, it was interesting. Adam and I went to go purchase a car and we had an experience where um, it was a vehicle that I was going to be driving. And so, you know, we were going to put, put our names both on the car, but um, we both went to buy this vehicle. And then um, all the correspondence, and even when we were like having our experience of buying the car, the um, all of the men in the shop were talking to him and kind of like leaving me <laughs> out of it. And then all the correspondence that we get on this vehicle is all Adam Copeland, Adam Copeland. And we, we just had a little laugh about it, you know, like those are kind of some, some, things that are ingrained in people and will take a long time to change. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's just interesting sometimes when you come across that, cause it's not all the time it's, it's getting better. So, so you, 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 you finished your high school career. Was there college uh, involvement when you got out or was, was it right direct path to a training school or anything like that? Yeah, I went to college um, and I continued to wrestle. Um, I was going to university of Buffalo. I was actually training. Um, they would just let me come and like, participate in the practices and I did a couple tournaments through USA Wrestling who had some they had some girls tournaments but it was usually like kind of like tacked on the side of a, a big male tournament and then they would have a female tournament there and but there just wasn't a lot of interest there wasn't a lot of girls and I kind of got I was probably like 20 21 years old and I got to the point where I'm like well, I, I feel like I have to make a decision. I'm going to college and I, you know, I, I have this path here. I'm, I was going to college in Buffalo and um, am I going to pursue pro wrestling or not? I was like, that's what I kind of, that's what I wanted to do. 
it was really pursue pro wrestling. So I kind of, you know, started moving away from doing the tournaments and the amateur wrestling and seeking out a training school. So that that's, I would say, uh, 2000, 99, 2000 is when I pivoted and started um, trying to get trained as a pro wrestler. And there was, wasn't a lot of schools out there like there is. Now you go to the internet and find 10 schools right in your same zip code there, but you had to really search to find the right one. And how did you kind of whittle them down and, and, and select where you finally ended up? I mean, it, it was a different time. There wasn't Google. And like I said, right. I, I didn't know anybody. I was just kind of like going to independent shows and meeting people. Um, in the beginning, I had gotten, I gave a person whom I will not name, but it was a person that was running a wrestling school and they, they ended up taking my money. And at that time I had no money and, and I had, you know, handed over $3,000 that I had scrimped and saved to get and ended up kind of getting shystered out of it. Um, so that was, that was a kind of a wake up call to like, oh, I have to, I have to be careful. I have to step lightly and I have to be smart out there. Um, and, uh, so yeah, so then I, I started meeting people from doing shows and then I ended up make, making my way through some friends, the all-nighters to, um, to, uh, run Hutchison school, AWF in Toronto, who had a lot of credibility because he had trained so many WWE wrestlers. And, you know, I wanted to be a pro wrestler, but I wanted to be a WWF slash E wrestler. Like that was, that was it for me. Like I, I truly like, that was the dream. So to me, I'm like, well, I want to go where Trish Stratus trained. I want to go where Edge and Christian trained, you know? And so um, that's how I ended up in Toronto. And Ron was wonderful. Ron was like, you know, like a Mickey style trainer. Like he, what he did not take it easy on us. He believed in the women as athletes. And he, he trained us very carefully. Like he wanted us to be able to work like the men. And um, I'll never forget I was in there with Tracy Brooks uh, it was like my first day and I had done a few independents where you know there was a variety of training on the independents it was kind of like the wild west a little bit um so you never knew who had trained with who like some people were wrestling full matches and had never really had any formal training we were just kind of making it up as we went and I got in there with Tracy who had had, had some great training through Ron and I stand there and I'm like okay so are we going to talk about what we're going to do and Ron goes, what is, no, he said, just wrestle, just work. Right. And I said, I, I had no idea like what working was like, or, or how, <laughs> what does that even mean? Like, I, I thought that yeah. you plan it out, A, B, C, D, E. I had no, I thought it was a choreographed dance. I didn't right. know. And um, so that was my first introduction. And it was a sloppy one, obviously, because right. I didn't know what I was doing. But, um, but that's where I learned. I was like, oh, there's a finesse to this. There's an art to this. This is not just an A to Z rehearsed dance. There's feeling here and there's listening. You have to listen to each other. You have to listen to the crowd. You have to listen to the referee. And, um, and it's just, yeah. So that was kind of like my first introduction to pro wrestling is an art. It's not, it's not a math equation. It's not a science. It's an art. And sorry, I'm talking so much. I feel like I'm- No, no, no. This, this is about you. This isn't about yeah. you, Mary. <laughs> Did, did, uh, did you see this change? And it was a seismic change in women's wrestling at that time. You know, I think Fit Finley had a lot to do with it, but yeah, Trish and Lita come along. You came along, Mickey came along, Victoria, Molly, Holly, so many great women wrestlers came along, but Stacy and Tori could have been great wrestlers too, but they just weren't, that wasn't the role for them. You know, they were good athletes, you know, but you had a, you had a lunder before that. And uh, so many, so many other great women wrestlers, not, not a ton of them because there wasn't a demand. But did you see that seismic shift coming at that at that time after, say, the Attitude Era coming into the Ruthless Aggression Era, as they call it? 
Oh yeah. And I think that's why I got frantic about getting in. Cause I'm like, I want to do that. I want to do that. I don't want to stand on the, on the ground and clap. I want to do what they're doing. And, and I think um, I, I might've just been a little bit like there was a few girls in my lane, but we were all just kind of getting moving and seeing this happen on television. And I will say like, you know, just like you mentioned, Stacy and Tori, like, I think that Fit Finley was kind of like going against the grain at that time. Like he was the naughty one that was willing to stand up and get in trouble to give the women just, you know, keep, you know, what's, what's the old saying, like give an inch, take a mile, you know, like Fit would take that mile. Like he wanted he wanted to see the women given the respect that the men were given. And sometimes, and oh, actually I'll say this too. So it didn't, it had nothing to do with ability. Stacy Keebler, Tori Wilson, phenomenal athletes. I mean, yep. th these women are Tori athletes. No. Every, every woman that came into our business and did the travel schedule were athletes and they're tough as hell. But it was about branding. Like our company is an entertainment business and the brand at the time was more sexualized. So the women were just providing what the brand was. That's That was our brand. As, as with the help of Fit Finley, like I said, taking that mile, we started changing the brand. And there was a demand for this new brand of more competitive matches. And so I, I was seeing that happen before my eyes and the women were kind of like, okay, well, We'll, we'll dress, you know, we'll dress in a certain way that's attractive. We'll present ourselves with this star quality and this like, you know, sexual, it's great if you want to look at us. It's great. But if, while you're looking at us, you're going to, we're going to keep your attention. We're not just yeah. capture attention. We're going to keep it and tell a story and you're going to get to know us as characters. And so um, I, I loved seeing that happen. And I loved seeing the diversity grow as we started changing. And then you started bringing in like a jazz, like someone like jazz sure. who really, you know, an underrated athlete in her own right. But, you know, then you had someone like Trish Stratus that was proving ground for Trish who had come in and been kind of like booked like a model in the beginning. And, you know, for her to have these competitive matches with Molly and Victoria and Jazz and Lita, um, then, you know, we we saw the perception change and that that has led to the the group that we have today. Well, what a time it was when you came through because when, when you first hit uh, OVW there, it was still the the the, the old style of the but so you so you saw it firsthand how it just rapidly once 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 uh fit had that nod to, to, to push the envelope a little bit he pushed it for till it was tipping off the table and you 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 women took advantage of it and rode with it and, and you got it got it where you where it needed to be there. So, so Jerry did did fit have the nod or did fit just do it? Fit, fit just <laughs> did it, but he, he also had to have the nod because I remember several conversations where Vince, what the hell's going on out there? You know, this is not what we want. And and then Phil would come come over for get up from uh, my side of the grill and walk over the other side. I could hear Vince chewing on him a little bit, but the Fit did back down. And I I I always respected for Fit for his belief and what he saw that we could turn this thing into. And and with the talent of the ladies out there. He was able to roll with it, and you guys—if if you guys hadn't been delivered, Fit would not have been had all those liberties. So that's the bottom yeah. line. Well, that's the thing, and and I think the other thing to mention is like they they put in the time to the women. You know, he would he'd come early if if we were working we're working live events, and Fit was an, was an agent with us, and that goes for all of our agents. You know, Dean Malenko, Willie Regal would physically get in the ring with us, especially women that were kind of put in like the toughest position, which is you're going to start on TV and then learn how to wrestle. You know, like I, I think, I think about Candace Michelle who came in again, 
as a model in our business and literally learned on the road to wrestle that I can't think of a more nightmare scenario than that, than being put in live TV matches and having to like figure it out as you go. And, you know, those, what, what I think people didn't see because it was on live events and not televised and it doesn't live, you know, in infamy is that there was a lot of hours put in before live event shows where the girls were always there wanting to learn. And we had men like Fit and, and William Regal and Dean Malenko that were there putting in the time with us. And like, you know, if, if we showed eager, you know, an eager attitude and interest, then they were there to answer that. And I thought, what a great thing we're creating, but you could, you could see it would take time. It would take years to also educate our audience th that the girls match is not going to just be a 90 second throwaway, that it's going to tell a story and you're going to have time to, to feel empathy for somebody selling. And you're going to have time, you know, to get excited when somebody fires up because, um, once the product was investing more in the women, then the audience could see that. And they, you know, it just feeds one another. Yeah. And that's why I thought Trish and Lita were, were so important. I think it's one of the most important uh, matches in, in women's history, because I think the women movement would have happened, but if they hadn't delivered, it would have been delayed five, 10 years. You know, when you talk about you guys delivered, you guys were the right people to deliver at the right time, because if you guys hadn't delivered, I think it still happens, but it's delayed significantly. Yeah, well, and the problem is, if we're demanding this, we want this platform, we want this state, right. we want more, more, yeah. more, if we go out there and I, I don't want to curse, but ish the bed, you know, then, <laughs> then it's harder to get another opportunity. And it kind of denies the opportunity to others. So there was a lot of pressure on like, you know, for example, like Trish and Lita in that moment, because they know the, the women's division is standing on their shoulders in that moment, like the future. And like you said, the progression and are they going to give the women one more chance? And are they going to get the chance then to pay it forward to the next generation? Does, does all of that happen as quickly if that match isn't, wasn't as fabulous and remembered as it was. So um, we, we all knew that we all felt that pressure um, each time we went out there to, to deliver because we were asking for it. We wanted it. So you know, we, there was no option to fail. We could not fail. How did the relationship with Molly Holly come about? You ended up giving her a demo tape. Was that right? And, yeah. and why, why, why Molly? Okay. So it's a crazy story. So when I was working with Ron in Toronto, Ron Hutchison, um, there was a gentleman there who was working, I, you know, Jason sensation, John, you, I don't know if you guys remember, he's working with Great Owen. impersonator. I, I thought he was just yeah. funny as he could be. Yes. So Jason was working in Toronto. I knew Jason and Jason knew Molly from his time in WWE. And he had said to me, I'd been working there for a couple of years. He said, Hey, Molly told me they, they need women. They're looking to hire women. So can you get me a tape? And it was myself, Gail Kim and Tracy Brooks. We were all kind of like uh, running mates together in Toronto. And so um, I had a tape of myself versus Gail and we had a booth at WrestleMania Access. It was like AWF's little booth. It was like in the farthest corner of the Expo Center. And um, there was this like handoff set up where Hurricane and Molly were gonna have a, uh, a, a photo meet and greet where you could stand in line for their photo. And I was supposed to bring my VHS, old school, <laughs> and hand it off to Molly at the, um, at the photo op. So, uh, I get the time that I'm supposed to go over there. I run over there and the line is crazy. Like I can't get in the line. Like there's no way I would make it up to the top before uh, Molly had to go. So just at that moment, I'm like feeling defeated. Like, how am I going to get this tape to, to Nora? 
And then I hear, do you smell what the rock is cooking? And rock was cutting a promo uh, on the stage at the expo. So then the whole line like ran <laughs> to go see rock. And I was just standing there and I was like, oh, fate. And so I like run up with my VHS and got to give it to Molly. And, uh, and she took it at that moment, right to the back to Dr. Tom Pritchard. And they put it right in the VCR and watched it there. And that's how I got, I ended up getting called for a tryout about, I think it was like eight months later, myself and Gail and Tracy. Uh, but that is how that first VHS got to Molly. And then Molly stayed in touch with me and I would, I'd pester her all the time, email her and say, I'll drive anywhere to be an extra. And she'd get me on the list so I could come and be an extra and just bother everybody. <laughs> um, but we've remained friends all these years. And, um, and she's done so much to help me out over the years. She paid for my wrestling training. Uh, I didn't have a good, you know, I didn't have a good costume, a good, you know, piece of gear to bring to WWE. She gave me gear, some of her old gear, you know, um, when, when I talk, I, when I talk about people that just are good to the core, it's Nora at the top of the list. Yeah, you get a few people in the world that nobody says anything bad about. Molly is one of those ones that everybody has something positive to say about. She's just she's just the best person on the planet. Yes. Just a, I, nice, just a nice, good person. Good person, yes. And I'm happy that she's now, she's just a wonderful presence to have uh, back in WWE. I'm glad she's there. That's a big deal for her to pay for your wrestling school, though. I mean, how, how, that how, did, that, how did that happen? And what was the transaction? I mean, that, that's that's amazing to me. Oh, it's such a she didn't story. she didn't know you before you gave her that VHS tape, right? I was literally just a random. I was a random kid, an an indie wrestler. I could have been anybody, and um, so she had then connected me with Nick Dinsmore, who knew Danny Davis and OVW. So you know, all these connections connect the dots. They said, Beth, if you drive yourself to Louisville, Kentucky, we can get you a tryout. That's it, like just a tryout. And so I was working a job at the time and I ended up having to quit my job in order to go um, do this tryout because they wouldn't give me the time off. So anyways, I was like broke, <laughs> no money, whatever. I go to this tryout, Danny Davis, I um, had me um, wrestle in the ring for an hour. They had other wrestlers there. They were tagging in and out and had me wrestle for an hour and I wouldn't give up. Again, I'm, I'm sure I was a sloppy mess in there, but Danny saw the heart in me and he said, I'll invite you to come work here in Kentucky with us, but you got to pay regular tuition like everybody else. And I said, okay, the, the opportunity to work with contracted talent, absolutely. So, you know, changed my life, moved my job or, you know, ended up getting a job, a job waitressing in Kentucky. I had very little possessions, came down to Louisville and I show up on my first day ready. You know, I had just $200. He was going to let me do installments. So I give him a check for $200 and I say, here's my first payment, Danny. I'm so excited. And he was writing the receipt and he hands me back a receipt for like a couple thousand dollars. And I said, oh, Danny, you put too many zeros on this. This is wrong. And I, I handed it back to him. He said, no, he said, a little birdie paid your tuition. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't tell me who. So Nora must have told Danny, do not tell Beth who paid for this. But I, I found out through the grapevine it was Nora. <laughs> that, that's, a, that's an amazing story. And just, oh. just the, the kindness of Nora and the kindness of, of people in our business when we see somebody with talent, how, how people go out of their way to help help other people with talent. And, and it's passed along after generation after generation. I think that's what's so cool about our business too. Well, and I think she had told me that like Randy had, Randy Savage had helped her out a lot in the beginning and she just wanted to pay it forward because I, I ended up cornering her later on and be like, how could you, you know, that was such a special thing to do for somebody you didn't even know. You barely right. knew me. 
you know, and, um, and she just, you know, she, and also she didn't want any credit. She's still very shy about it. She wanted it to be a secret, but I'm nosy. <laughs> <laughs> that's just amazing to me. I just, no. I mean, that's, and that's a big chunk of change. I mean, that's not, that's not a small amount. $2,000 is, is not a small amount to, that's not no. money. No. And I just, I think it's such a valuable lesson. And I, you know, I tell, I tell folks this all the time, like, you know, I'll, I'll I've learned so much from so encountering so many awesome people. And Chavo Guerrero told me something once that his dad told him, Chavo Classic, had told him that he said, we don't get to keep wrestling. We just borrow it for a while. And at some point we have to give it back. And I just thought that was such a cool like metaphor. Like we, we're just borrowing it. And I thought in that moment, that was Nora's way of like helping give back, helping share it back and, and keep pro wrestling alive. Um, and, you know, and impart that tradition in someone like me who that landed with me so heavy. I, I hope I can ever help anybody as much as she helped me. And how did you like OBW? How did you like Danny Davis, the whole setup there? The, the I mean, you were there during, when the great class was coming through, right? Yes. Well, I just missed like the John Cena, the Randy Orton, but um, yeah, we were there. Uh, we were just kind of the next generation right after that in the new Davis arena. But I loved, loved, I loved my time in OBW because I felt like I was just all in. Like I, I was there setting up the ring. I was sweeping the floors and I worked there for many, many years. Actually, it ended up being like a year and a half, almost two years that I was not under contract. But I was given this cool lane where I could train because I had enough experience with the contract talent. So I got to be there getting, you know, when Undertaker came down and Ted DiBiase came down and the agents would watch us all work. I was always just kind of in the mix. So I got seen a lot. And Danny and Al Snow, Lance Storm, um, you know, Jimmy and then Paul Heyman, everybody that was involved in the system always worked to give me an opportunity to be seen. So if I was improving, even if I wasn't under contract, they're like, oh, well, there's that Beth again. There she is. Man, she just won't go away. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So I think they could see me grow and I could just keep knocking and pounding on that door. And then, um, you know, Tommy Dreamer ended up, you know, being able to give me that phone call at some point. How, how did that transition happen? I know you're getting into it, but you're, you're not a contracted performer. You're, you're down there just busting it every day and trying to get better. They saw that obviously, but and when when did you feel? Did you kind of feel that it was time for me to to get that opportunity, or or was you just shocked when that came? No, it was it was kind of the opposite. Like I feel like I had I actually was working on OVW television a lot, which was again them you know everybody down there. Danny was just trying to get me a job. Like they were they all believed in me. They really wanted WWE to see what they saw. And so a lot of times I was working Mickey James and Jillian and contracted talent to try to, you know, get an opportunity. Um, but at the time that, uh, that I got signed, I was working two jobs, working a golf course and at Perkins. I was like every hour that I wasn't wrestling or in the gym, I was working. I was out of money. I was deep in debt. I had college loans and I was just like, I don't think this is going to happen. Like I was literally at the end of it. Like I got to go home. I'm broke. I got nothing left, you know, and uh, it's, it's, a, it's, I was really hitting bottom and I'll never forget because I was coming off of a really early, like 6am Perkins shift coming back to my apartment and I'm covered in like, you know, maple syrup and slop and I'm drinking a soda at like, you know, 11 o'clock or 12 o'clock and uh, my phone rings and it was Tommy. And I thought it was, you know, Tommy had called me to check in here and there and kind of give me bad news. Like, well, Beth, we're hiring 10 people. You're not one of them. And 
So I thought it was maybe another one of those. And he's like, hi, Beth. He goes, uh, I'm calling to give you some news. And I was like, here it comes. And he goes, we're going to offer you a contract. Wow. And then it went silent. And then Tommy goes, do you want me to give you some time? <laughs> and I said, uh-huh. no, no. I said, can, how can I sign this? I was like, can you fax it to me? Cause I was so scared if I didn't sign it fast enough that it wouldn't like they take it away. Um, but yeah, it was, it was not, it was not where I was like, oh, it's time. It was definitely the opposite. I was like, it's not going to happen for me. I was having some massive self-doubt. So, that so you, you're on the verge of just walking away from, from your dream at the, at the time when you got the phone call. I just, I was out of money. Like I just, yeah. I was, I was hustling and hustling, but I was broke. I'm like, I can't pay my bills. Wow. And I'm deeply in debt. And and I honestly, I didn't want to, um, my parents had taken school out, loans out for me too. So I, I felt like terrible. Like I, that they, I mean, I told them, listen, I'm going to go make it. I'm going to do this. And they were hesitant. They were like, you've got this college degree. Well, you're throwing your life away. And so those doubts started to creep in. And I, I also felt a responsibility to go back home and get my life together, you know, and, and the circus isn't going to work out for me, you know, go home. So I had some, I had a lot of doubt with that time. So it was pretty cool. It was cool that, you know, to go from that barrel, the bottom or bottom of the barrel moment in my Perkins apron to like, I'm a, I'm going to be a WWE wrestler. So, so you got to get, get the phone call from Tommy. Who was your first phone call when you got to deal with mom and dad saying I made it or how, how did that go? Um, yeah, no phone call. Uh, I flew home. Uh, I flew you flew home. home. I pulled them in person. Yes. And I don't, I still don't think that they understood what I was saying. And, and I think like until they came to see the first WWE show that it's still, none of it was really real. And, um, and, and also like the way the women had been presented at that time, you know, we, we had a relationship with Playboy, we were very sexualized and that's kind of not me. I, I hadn't presented myself that way. And it, it's just not, it, that wasn't, um, that wasn't the way I wanted to be presented. And so I think they were like, you know, are you gonna, are you gonna go outside of what your comfort zone is? Like they, they were, they had concerns for me in the, in that respect too. Um, and, uh, and, and so I think they, they just wanted me to have what I wanted, but at the same time, they were also very trepidatious. <laughs> where, where were you living at the time? Uh, were you, were you splitting an apartment? You, you said you lived pretty quick. Were you, were you splitting an apartment with other people? Did you have your own? What were your living accommodations? Yeah, I was in, um, Louisville, Kentucky in an apartment with my ex. And then I ended up moving, um, once I got signed, um, and the OBW system was kind of changing, um, a lot of friends were moving to Tampa and, you know, the lack of state tax was very desirable. And then also the fact that there was, um, deep South was starting to get rolling there in that area or no, it wasn't deep South. It was NXT at that time. Yeah, I mean, it was FCW. FCW, FCW, yeah. sorry. Deep South was Georgia, correct? I'm All right. Yes. Systems, but, um, yes. Uh, FCW was there with Steve Kern, whom I love. And, um, so I was like, okay, well, I'll be close to a school and there'll be, um, you know, I, I, I wanted to be amongst other talent and also like a medical facility in case we get hurt, like our, our rehab and all, all of our, um, you know, our trainers are in that area as well. So for me, it was like, I kind of, if I'm going all in on this job, I want to be in the area where everybody is and our resources are, if I need to go to the ring. And you wanted to be near Gerald Briscoe. <laughs> that's the main reason you know I, 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 I knew that was a fact I just didn't want to bring it up body shop fender fender that's right I tell you we, we had the shop going we sold we sold so so many cars to young talent there back in those days it was 
kind of cool because they 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 knew we'd have a good reliable car for them, and so uh, we we I, I I put so many cars on the uh, layaway plan, you know. Give yeah. me twenty dollars this week. Give me twenty dollars next week. <laughs> you know what? I, I I did all but one. It paid off their their loan there, and I, I won't. I'll never tell them the one that did. Oh. <laughs> Out of how many, Jerry? Out probably about 25, 30 cars. We sold. We sold the town. And, and the, I know, and one only one person. One it was a guy. It wasn't a girl. And, and uh, we we had one one lady. It wasn't Teddy, it wasn't Teddy Long, was it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I promised Teddy I wouldn't tell. I wouldn't write off. <laughs> but yeah, we, you know, my partner Travis, uh, we had one of the young, young ladies come in, and she, she, she was buying a car for her mom, and mm -hmm. so uh, not for her, for her mom. We'd already sold her a car for her, and she paid it off real quick. She paid it off before the time was was over. I guess it's a thirty percent interest we started. <laughs> no. But, she paid it off, and then she came to us. She said, "I need a car for mom. I want, I want to step up a little bit more." She got got a raise on her contract there, so we we went out. We went to a couple of auctions. We found a perfect car for her mom, and her mom drove it. I, I met her mom several years later. Her mom was still driving the car and still raving about it. So we we had a good relationship with Steve down there, and, and the students were were always to the word there. So. Beth, you, yeah, like you said, he loved to see her, and I love him too. I just talked to him right before we did this show here, and uh, he's doing well. Oh, so. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. I remember when I broke my jaw, and it, it was like my first injury in WWE, and Steve rode in the ambulance with me the whole way to the hospital. I didn't know if that was typical. I don't think it's typical that the agents uh, go with you, uh, but uh, he hopped right in the back, and he, he took me all the way to the hospital. He's so sweet. I just uh, I love Steve. For sure. So you came down here, you, you got you got an FCW. You had quite a crew down there. That, that was one of the first, that was the transition crew when they were closing down Georgia and, and uh, Tennessee or Kentucky, I think, wasn't it? Um, yeah. So I didn't train in FCW. I'd popped in a couple times to meet some of the new talent, but I was already on the road full time oh, when I moved to Tampa. So once once I like the OVW thing, so I ended up getting brought up in 2005 with a mix of people. I was brought up as a baby face and then I got injured. I broke my jaw like four or five weeks in. It was very early. And then they sent me back to OVW and to heal. And I was thinking to myself, okay, well, I'll only be back. They said it was going to be like, I think six to eight weeks on the jaw. And then I'm thinking, oh, they'll just fast track me right back. Like I, I just, I didn't know how it worked. I, I assumed my spot was there waiting for me. Well, six and eight weeks went, three months went, six months went, nine months went. And I started to get panicked. I was like, oh no, like they're not going to bring me back. And then I was kind of lost in the shuffle. So that's when I had to start kind of cooking up some schemes on how to like get noticed again. I didn't realize that it wouldn't be just on a platter, you know? And uh, that's kind of how the Glamazon came about because um, I was trying to come up with a moniker something to get noticed again and try to change my work style a little bit instead of- How, how, did, how did that come, come about? That's a, that's a great story of the Glamazon. Uh, tell us a little so again, like I was just kind of floundering and my first run, when I went up, I was, I, I was not prepared in the sense that I wasn't emotionally prepared for what the main roster was and how to, you know, just how to handle all that stress. And it's just so big. Um, so that year in OVW was actually like, I think it was maybe the most valuable year of my career. I, I often think there was some divine intervention in injuring me 
and getting me back to OVW to spend a year really getting into the nitty gritty. And part of that year was finding myself. I stopped trying to be um, something I wasn't. I stopped trying to be like um, a clone of Trish Stratus. That was like, kind of like, I was trying to be the next Trish and I'm not, I'll, I'll never be Trish. Nobody will ever fill those shoes. So I had to figure out who I was. And in that year, that's what I did. And so I'd heard the word Glamazon on Sex in the City. And I was like, oh man, that sounds like a wrestling name. And I was like, oh wait, that could be my wrestling name. <laughs> and so I very crudely had our seamstress just so Glamazon on the butt of my pants and on my just normal plain looking gear. And, um, and then I started wrestling different. I started doing more power moves and I started, you know, um, trying to wrestle like Umaga instead of like Trish, you know? <laughs> and, and what happened was because of the landscape of the women at that time, even though I'm not like a six foot tall woman, I, I tried to wrestle like that and create a dynamic in our matches that then as a heel, I'd give the baby face more of a mountain to climb. And so once I started telling that, that story in my matches, I found I really hit a groove. And I think that's when um, I got brought up. Candice Michelle had been a uh, our baby face champion. And I think they were just kind of testing the waters on a few different girls with her on the live events who had good chemistry and who would be a good contender for her. And I was one of them. And um, Candace and I had one loop in Wildwood, New Jersey of live events. William Regal got in there and showed us a few cool things. And we had this match that was like a, like a real competitive title match. And then after that, it was Rocket Strap City. Like after that, Candace and I were working every weekend and we had our title match and I became champion. It like all came on very, very fast. Um, but it, it really stemmed from tr figuring out how to work as that character. You know, Beth, I think that's more norm than it is abnormal. The, you know, people come in, you know, Kurt Angle came in and went straight to the top, but that's about the only one. Everybody else was like me and you came in and got uh, got lost and mm. overwhelmed because it, it is overwhelming. You know, I think now with NXT, it's an easier transition because so much more is the same. But, you know, back in the day, it wasn't. It was, it was really overwhelming to see... 18 tv trucks in the big arena and and then you kind of get lost then you figure it out and come back and that that to me seems much more the norm when you look at wrestlers nearly every one of them the same thing with the rock you know all of them come in and at some point get overwhelmed get lost come back and then either make it or they don't yeah and i think like i said i i still count that year of um you know it was a tough year but i still count that as the most important year in my career because I think if I hadn't gotten hurt and hadn't gotten lost, I would have been lost in the shuffle. Like, I think I, I, I think I really wouldn't have understood um, how to navigate the rocky waters. And, and it's, it's so much more, it's even like travel. Like I was not a, a good savvy traveler when I started with WWE, that took time, you know, and we didn't have GPS when I started, my dad was printing out MapQuest directions for me. And you know, and I'm stopping at cities and I'm driving, traveling by myself because I don't know anybody. And so it was, that was also really scary, just kind of figuring out the world and going to South Africa for the first time. And, you know, I, and I hadn't been on that many flights. So um, it was, it was a good, important area or year of growth for me. And, um, and, and I do, I tell young talent that too, like, take a deep breath because it's, you know, it all starts coming real fast. <laughs> You, you you brought up some traveling by yourself as a, as a professional lady on, on the road there, and you're you're out in the middle of nowhere. You don't know the environment around you. You don't know the lay of the land. You don't know how the people are are in that area. 
that you know, it, it's so much different for a guy, you know, to be out on the road than, than it is for a, for a, for a young lady there. Tell them, were there ever any, 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 uh, any catches of when you were out there that really shook you and, and, and had your doubts? Yeah. I mean, I think in the beginning I was trying so hard to like prove myself and like prove myself to myself that I could do all this. And I could do it on my own and I could just do it. So I did, I did some driving on my own in the beginning. Um, and then I realized, I said, number one, it's too expensive. I can't afford it. <laughs> and no, number two, it's, it's not practical and it's lonely. Like it's lonely. And I'm, I'm missing out on the bonds. The best, you know, one of the best parts of our business is bonding with each other and the funny jokes and all of the, you know, the foibles that happen along the way. And so I, you know, I, depending on what show I was on, I, I had all kinds of different riding partners, but over the years, I would, I still say that riding with the hearts were, was my favorite yeah. <laughs> time riding with Harry and Natty and TJ. And, um, you know, just, we would tell so many stories and they're so ingrained in the wrestling business that that was also like, for me, just like, you know, it, it was entertainment for me all day to listen to the stories and hear, you know, all the good old days and because they would just share their stories from their uncles and family. And, and um, yeah, that was a lot of fun. But uh, Natty and I, usually if we traveled together, we would entertain ourselves because it'd be three o'clock in the morning or two o'clock in the morning. We're driving somewhere and we're coming out of these shows like with our hair done up and we're full makeup and high heels and tight clothes and we're like teetering into these convenience stores at three in the morning and we would sometimes we would mess with the clerks and like you know that they're looking at us like what what is the backstory here what on earth is happening here and so we would sometimes talk and, t and just create these crazy backstories it's like, oh, we're just coming from a wedding and, you know, and just like start and engage conversations just to have some fun with the clerks. And, um, but I can't imagine what they must have thought of us. <laughs> What's even crazier though, is you guys in makeup is one thing. Seeing Taker in makeup leave an arena or <laughs> is completely different. There's some, great, there's some great stories of, of Taker uh, at, at convenience stores <laughs> with Paul Bear. Oh my gosh, I can only imagine uh, what the clerk's faces must have been seeing them walking. They said Paul Bear was driving one time. I mean, Paul Bear was driving or taking, I can't remember which one. And some guy comes up to him, you know, some guy who was under the influence of something, not sure what, but comes up and he's kind of messing with him. And and Taker's in full makeup, everything's still on because he left right after his match and he does and he does the turn. And the guy goes, Oh my God, he killed somebody. He's killed. <laughs> Yeah, that that's when you know when you know you've been on the road for a really long stretch. You just got to do things to entertain yourself. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So during that run, did you start feeling comfortable in, in the ring? What, what at that point? What point did you start feeling comfortable uh, in the ring? Well, so Adam and I have this talk a lot. That's like so I don't I didn't feel comfortable for so long, mainly because I set like impossible standards for myself. Like, um, I, I would beat myself up. Like, you know, everybody in the audience could say I suck, but it, I, I, they couldn't beat me up as hard as I would beat up myself. If there was something that I didn't, that I thought could have gone better or, you know, anybody was disappointed or I, I would take that really to heart. Um, but I felt like my last couple of years in like 2011, 2012, I felt like I'd finally gotten in the groove where I could go out there and call a match with complete confidence. I also knew the girls and I knew their, I knew their repertoires. I knew everybody's stuff. So I felt like I felt so 
confident at that time. I'd come off of an injury. I'd had an ACL surgery. So I knew what it was like to have a big injury and I wasn't afraid of that anymore. Um, but yeah, I think my last year, I really started to understand how to tell a story and the, what's really important in a match. And it's not just performing the moves A to Z, it's all the in-betweens. And I feel like sometimes when I would wrestle in the beginning of my career, I could see myself thinking, like I could see myself when I'm in between, you know, and it would be like, I'm thinking about what's next instead of being in the moment and, and staying in the moment and having all the in-betweens. And toward the end, I didn't have to think about what was next. I was just thinking about what I'm doing at that second. And I think that's where the finesse comes um, that you only get with time. It takes time sure. to get that. Yeah, Steve Kern uh, calls it uh, movement uh, over emotion. You know, and yeah. that's just, that's, that defines it so well. You know, I, I see it all the time with young guys uh, out there, or young girls, you know, when they're not quite confident, it's all about movement. You know, you want to fill, you want to fill voids. But when you get comfortable, it's it's about emotion because in those voids, that's when you're able to show emotion. That's when you're able to work. That's when those transitions become so important. But that's tough to learn. You know, that's something you can't learn really in wrestling school. That's something you just learn being in the ring a lot. That's where like the live events, like I loved my favorite part of wrestling was the live events. It wasn't TV. It wasn't pay-per-views. Those stressed me out. <laughs> but the live events was where I didn't have handcuffs and we could have fun and we could really interact with the audience and I could try new things and see what would work and what wouldn't. And um, so the live events were just, they were so much fun when I didn't have children and could just live on the road, you know, uh, it was, it was the best part of my career to just get to go in there and, and, and truly do like what I felt like was the art of the business. Television is like the commercial, you know, you're really kind of bound by a lot that's happening on the show and times and, all that stuff. Um, but the live events, just the heart of the matter, the meat and the potatoes. And, um, I, I loved those. It was a learning experience. So the greatest, uh, TV couple since Lucy and Desi and, and no offense to the current iteration of you and your real life husband <laughs> on, on camera was Glamorella. Oh. <laughs> I love Glamorella. <laughs> I thought you guys were just awesome. Oh I'm such God. a big fan of Santino. And, and I thought you guys had the greatest chemistry that had to be a lot of fun. Oh my gosh. It was so much fun. I mean, Anthony and I are still very good friends to this day. And, uh, and I, I do have to, I got to give him so much credit because I, I actually we just had this, I keep repeating myself, but we just had this conversation earlier too, how, um, I, I had an, I had every bell and whistle to get over as a monster heel. Like when I came in, I had all the bells and whistles, but I didn't really get over and known with the audience until I worked with Santino because Santino was so giving. He was so giving as a character. He was just wide open and he was never afraid to play. He didn't care if he looked weak. He didn't have like, you know, a masculine wall. He didn't care. He, he really was working for entertainment, just entertainment. And sometimes he would work just to entertain us. Like he was always, I, I kind of had a little reputation for being hard to break, you know, like I was always mm, in character and it was hard to get me to break. So he kind of would make it his mission to try to get me to break on television to just get me, right? And I remember he did this thing. He he has so many highlights that it's we could do a five-hour podcast on my favorite Santino moments. But he he went to do this uh, entrance like Molina, this big split on the on the ring apron. And he's like struggling to get, he gets one leg up. And then when he gets the other leg up, he pulls his groin and he falls backward. So, 
So earlier in the day, you know, I knew this was going to happen. And, and I was like, okay, so what do you want me to do? He goes, come attend to me after I fall. And I was like, okay. But when he gives me vague instructions, it usually means he's got a plan. <laughs> and so I go over to attend to him because he pulled his groin and then he's holding his crotch and like, like his legs are shaking, like he's being electrocuted. And he's just yelling, my meatballs, my meatballs, my meatballs. And I just lost it. You can just see me like cover my whole face like this. It got me so good. It was just funny. And I think like when you, when you can have fun with your on-screen partner like that, it, I mean, I'm, I'm glad it was memorable for everybody else. And I'm glad John, you mentioned them, you know, that, that uh, tag team combination. But it's so memorable for me because it was truly like the most fun I ever had in my career. You know, the ha-ha sometimes is the most fun. You know, you do the blood and guts match. You do the matches, you know, that you think are, were really good. But the ha-ha is by far the most fun thing to do. It's just, it's just it cracks up everybody, cracks up you. And it's just, it's fun to do stuff like that. Yeah. And I, I think back to when I was a kid watching wrestling and, you know, things that I loved and found entertaining. Entertaining. I loved Bobby Heenan, even though he was the bad guy, but he always made me laugh. And I always, you know, he at his own expense, you know, but there was just something I, I hoped, you know, the whole point of wanting to become a pro wrestler was to make people smile and to, you know, send people off, have feeling like they had a good time and remembering, oh, remember when we saw that? That was awesome. And to, to, to say I could have been a part of that for somebody else's experience or childhood is a gift. Yeah, San, Santino to me, I mean, he was one of those guys you could you could do just about anything to. And he just didn't take himself that seriously. You know, I mean, he always took his work serious and, and whether it was comedy or whether, whether it was a, a serious one-on-one uh, -on -one with a guy there. But you and him just had that magic chemistry that just flowed together. You seemed to open each other up. There was always a, always that smile and that cooperation. When, when you get partners like you two work to each other, it just makes it so much easier to to go out there and perform. I noticed when 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 me and Pat Patterson did that goofy stuff with the Stooges. Pat when Pat in the beginning he was so keyed up and we weren't really getting anything. Then when Pat started really accepting the character, that's when Pat really loosened up and it was it became so much fun there because we were both having fun out there. And that that's the secret of business. If you, if you could go out and have fun, you know the people watching you are having fun. And that's the that, that's the secret sauce right there. Like they can tell our audience can tell yeah. if you're not feeling it, whether it's fun or you're feeling like you said, keyed up or energetic or excited or angry. They can tell when it's fake. They can tell. Yeah. And you're not going to get the reactions like that. Like um, this word effusive. I know Vince has used this word effusive and it means just like, you know, it's just you're you're wearing your heart on your sleeve. And, and the audience, there's just that magical energy that, that translates when you're being real, when you're bringing a little bit of your truth to it. Yeah. And I always thought, you know, like Michael Jordan, arguably the greatest basketball player of all time, you make some, you know, arguments with Bill Russell and some other guys, but arguably, but the true joy in watching Jordan was not him scoring 50 points. It was that tongue wagging and flying through the air. And you're going, this guy's having a ball. And you feel like I just paid a ton of money to come watch this guy it's worth every penny. You know, when you see somebody and they realize that their heart's in what they're doing, whatever it is, you know, Gary Hart used to always say, if they tell you to be a clown, be the best professional clown there is. You know, if your heart's in it, it gets over. Oh yeah. Like I, I think to, to our recent product, Nikki Cross, this is a little thing, but Nikki Cross running to the ring, like at the Royal Rumble, that, that ramp 
um, at the road <laughs> this past year was a mile long. It might as well be 20 miles long. It was so long. And, you know, myself, because I've done that walk, I power walk because I'm not about to like get into the ring and be like, oh my God, my heart's going to explode. I'm blown <laughs> up. And Nikki Cross, when she comes out, she is full tilt, full sprint, and she does not slow down. Then she continues the comeback. Bing, 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 bing. And the crowd, I just remember them like reacting and freaking out so much because they realize the feat that this is. And they realize that she is putting it all out there and just giving us everything she's got. And and those are the moments that, you know, you get those real genuine reactions from the audience because they're just in awe. They're like, Holy cow, how are you doing this? Being, being at home and watching that and knowing how long those reps are, I, I, huh. I, I'm, not, I'm thinking, okay, what, what's, what's, what's the blow up time come? What's the blow yes. And, and you to credit to her, but she, there wasn't any. She the stride just kept on getting bigger. No, and it's like one of those things where, like, you know how you, like, you rib yourself? Because now every time she comes to the ring, she has to do it. <laughs> <laughs> She's so full of energy, and, and that energy translates. So, like, the crowd, the crowd loves her. <laughs> It's like the warrior used to do that entrance. Didn't even have to pan to the crowd for him to breathe for about five minutes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've been there. <laughs> oh, I have too. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's the worst thing ever to have some big entrance and then have to go straight into a match. You know, yeah. That's one of the things people don't realize. You know, a lot of times uh, we get we get promos right before the match. And you have to do a promo, you have to do a fight, and then you have to end up in a match, all straight back to back. If that's Hollywood, that takes two weeks to film. Yes, yes. And that's, you know, it's been really interesting because I've gotten to be a fly on the wall for Adam's acting career. And I kind of see the process, their process versus pro- our process. And I, I have so much appreciation for everybody that works behind the scenes in WWE because I'm like, literally everyone behind the scenes could probably do everybody's job. Like they're just so multi-talented and it's such great preparation for any branch of entertainment they move on to. Like if you can, if you can hang in WWE, you're prepared for just about anything yeah, in the right. entertainment world. Um, but yeah, it's very different. Like Adam gets his scripts well in advance and he's running his lines for a couple of weeks and, you know, and then shows up and everything goes as planned. There's not one person on a headset going, you know what? Scrap all that. Let's just start <laughs> over. <laughs> so I, I'm the biggest Vikings fan in the world. And then when, when, when Adam got on the thing, I've told him this many, many times. And I told him, I said, man, I'm just a huge Vikings fan. It's just so awesome that you're on it. And he had something where they'd filmed the next uh, scene. He goes, man, that we were just in where they were, Ireland or where are they filmed from? Yeah, Ireland, he said, yeah. He said, let me show you this scene. He goes, oh, no. He goes, this will spoil something. Do you want to see it? I go, no. no. <laughs> anyway, I, he was awesome in that. I thought he did a wonderful job. Yeah, he was. He was awesome. The thing that I feel like sucks about it is he had a prosthetic nose and he had this huge wig and huge beard. So I was like, I feel like that character and his his role on that show, which was pretty prominent the last few seasons, didn't get as much like publicity because like if people are like, oh, that was you? Like, I think he's just pretty unrecognizable in it. He's got this big flat nose. Like our children were really little when he was over there doing that. So he would FaceTime in the full garb. And like, they were a little frightened. They're like, whoa. And we'd have to like have a talk. Like that's just daddy's Halloween costume. And <laughs> it, it was, it was pretty jarring to see the transformation. It was a big difference. How, how old are your children now, Beth? My oldest is nine. She'll be 10 this year. Oh, wow. And the youngest is six. She'll be turning six. seven. Are, are there, you, you're, you're making your return on TV. Are they, are they, are they concerned about mom when you go out there or what, what's their reaction when you get home and, and how do you explain the business to them? 
So we've kept them, we've kept wrestling kind of compartmentalized for the bulk of their lives. Um, we have our championship belts and like some memorabilia in the gym and we try to keep it in the gym. And we've been really adamant to the kids from day one that like, this is just like acting. It's just like, you know, a ballet, we're performing moves. We know each other. We're all friends and just trying to like diffuse the violence aspect of things. Um, but we brought them last year to the Royal Rumble just to give them like, we didn't know if we would ever tag again. So we're like, this is probably a once in a lifetime ex experience. So if you guys want to come, this is the time to see it. And they sat front row and um, my oldest, my youngest was really into it. She gets real fired up. Um, I was excited to see the, the lights and the performance, but my oldest was a little, she was worried and uh, it affected her. So it just, it, it kind of like, it, it confirmed to me that, you know, every child is really different. And just because you have two parents in the same industry doesn't mean that's going to pass down. I, I mean, who knows? Everything could change in five years. She could be the biggest wrestling fan ever, but for the most part, they're really concerned about mom and dad's health. And they, I think they see the consequences when we come home and we're tired and sore and, you know, especially dad's injuries. He had a pretty serious, you know, elbow. He had a torn tricep a couple of years ago. So they saw the consequences of that. And, um, and they just, they, when I was traveling every week for NXT, it, it built a lot of anxiety in the kids. Like I ended up leaving the full-time job because Ruby asked Santa Claus if mommy could stay home. And it was like, <laughs> when, and she didn't ask for a toy. She sat in Santa's lap and said, I want my mommy to stay home. And so like, if that, if that didn't kill me, I don't know what. So we, we were kind of thinking about it anyways, just because it's been tough on them for mom and dad to be going. Um, and so that was the, that was kind of the decision where I was like, while they're this little, I got to be around more. And luckily we're able to do these sporadic things and still have some fun together. But for the most part, you know, I'm, I'm back in the semi-retired life. <laughs> yeah. Not everybody is able to make that transition. You know, a lot of people have tried, you know, from being in the ring to being on commentary, because it's different when you're looking at it and not, not have a vested interest of, of talking about yourself or, or anything else, but just about the match from a, from a bystander point of view, you did a great job of it. How was that transition for you? when you went to NXT to do commentary? Oh man, that was one of the toughest things I've ever done in my life. Um, mainly because I was not known as being a good talker in my, my wrestling career. And um, it was kind of something that terrified me and intimidated me. And I, I just never thought that would be something I'd ever be asked to do, number one. And number two, like I, I didn't have confidence in myself at all. I struggled hard. I struggled hard in the beginning. Um, I had wonderful partners that were elevating me and, get, and helping me. And Michael Cole was helping me. Tom was helping me. Um, Nigel, Morrow, everybody was working to fill the gaps for me. But it took a long time to really kind of figure out um, what the job actually is. And then I also learned as I went to um, one of the challenges, which I felt like I, I transitioned well on was I've been on commentary as a wrestler. And all you have to do is talk about yourself and your own story, which is easy, Right. But being a commentator, you have to know everybody's story. You got to have backstories and you have to bring forward and highlight everybody on the show. So it becomes a really kind of like selfless job. You can no longer have that big, you know, it's all about me ego. You got to start to realize like I'm a part of building, you know, this entire brand and, and helping build these characters. And um, so it's a, you have to be able to put on a different hat in that role. And then the other thing is um, it's, 
it took a long time for me to number one, get used to the traffic in the ears. Like there's so many people talking <laughs> at the same time. Um, but also uh, really trying to figure out a way to put someone else's vision in my own words, because, you know, we're given, um, you know, we know, okay, here's the story that has to come forth or here's what, where we have to go. So we as commentators have to bring forward these stories that are written in creative, but then also not give anything away and, and, and use our own voice. So there's just so many things going on. And um, I think, I think, some wrestlers are cut out for it and some like myself it takes a lot longer <laughs> yeah it's kind of tough you know what, what I, I had a problem with the first time was uh i had a problem with this coaching because i was still wanting to play football as you, if you're still have an interest in being in the ring it's tough to do commentary objectively but once you realize that you're just the person that's calling the show it becomes much easier did you find did you find that as well yeah um so you know, full transparency. Like I felt like, I felt like that because I had done like a Royal Rumble, a little Royal Rumble match. And I had done like Randy RKO'd me. So I'd done like a couple things on camera and I, I had, I had the self-awareness that I had a little unfinished business in my heart. And I have no, I, I loved commentary and I actually really loved the role. Cause you know, I was kind of like auntie, auntie Beth. Like, I feel like the young generation looked to me like a comforting, comforting voice, you know? Um, and I, and I love that role. It's very motherly for me, very majorly, but I, I, I definitely felt like I still had a little unfinished business in my heart in the, on the performance side of things. Um, and I'm really happy that I've gotten to kind of get that, get that out of my system, um, and have some fun. Um, but you know, I don't, I don't discount doing something like that in the future. I, I just take it one day at a time. I don't have lofty plans. Uh, <laughs> who, our, our world has changed so much in the last three years that I just kind of take things. I roll with it. Uh, Beth, uh, speaking of a world changing, I, I know you're living up in beautiful Asheville, North Carolina, that, that area up there. What a great place to be there uh, all year round. Uh, but uh, we got a mutual friend, uh, Mr. Bill Murdoch, that, that's very involved in, in local charities up there. And he says you you and Adam are, are forefront. Every time there's a charity coming along that, that he's requested, if he could, he could help, help uh, talk you guys into it. He said, I never have to talk to them, to them very long. He said, they're ready. So I want to congratulate that. Just tell us about some of the charity that, that, that you guys are involved in up there. Yeah, so for many years, we were working with Evelyn Charities um, for, with, with uh, regard to food insecurity. And um, that's kind of like a, that's something that came up quite a bit, I think, because Adam and I had, you know, humble beginnings. And, um, you know, we, we both know what it's like to be hungry. And we just know there's a need in our area. There's a big economic gap and um, there's always there's always a need. Um, so we kind of got started in that. And now that our kids are in the public school system, we, Evelyn does a lot with the public school system, but in particular, because our children are in elementary school here at Estes, um, I've, I, there's more avenues for me um, to do stuff in the elementary system here. So I've been like really hands-on doing a lot in the school. Like we, one thing we've been doing recently that I love and, and Adam and I both support this big time is reading, encouraging reading with our students. And um, so we've been we've been going in the school and doing some reading and we try to make it entertaining. You know, wrestlers bring our own special brand of clown <laughs> clowning around. <laughs> so um, that's been really fun to go in the elementary school. And then the other thing um, we've been doing is drama club because what's more dramatic than pro wrestling? So We've been, um, last fall, we had second, third, and fourth graders coming in, and I was teaching a little improv drama club 
in the morning. So we were doing that. And I just really, really enjoy working with kids. And um, my children were a part of it and had so much fun too. And, and so we're just, we're, we're trying to give to our community. Like it's sometimes overwhelming to think about, um, you know, doing altruistic things in the world. Like, what can I change? What can I really change? And I've gotten the great advice, just start small. And to me, that's our school right down the road or, you know, our local grocery store, or if, if we have Evelyn charities or any other charity that might be in need of a couple extra pair of hands or, you know, a familiar face, like sometimes if they advertise and, and Glenn Jacobs has come and done it with us too, or if you just slap our faces on a poster and say pro wrestlers signing autographs, bring a can of food, you know, then we'll get, we'll get a line of people that will come for an autograph. And, and then we've collected several cans of food. So um, it's, it's been nice to kind of like connect with our community here in Nashville. There's like, I, I've said it five times, but there's always a need. And anytime anybody's got some spare time or an extra pair of hands, we've got some work for you. <laughs> yeah. And, and the great thing that, that, that Bill always tells me that not only do you guys get your uh, picture plastered on the poster, but you guys are out there doing, doing the hands-on work and bagging those groceries that they come in, putting them in bags and delivering them where they need to be delivering. And that, 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 that's so, so wonderful to hear. Yeah. Well, again, it's sometimes um, there's, there's always a need for volunteers and for help. So we're not, uh, we love doing that. It's 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 what we look forward to doing more of in re in retirement if we ever retire. <laughs> <laughs> Are you going to retire? Do you have plans of like? I know you you say you just kind of taking it day by day, which I I certainly understand. But do you have plans of uh, what you what you want to do? Say five years, ten years, or so on going going forward. Yeah. Um, so I had been in a master's program here. I wanted to get into therapy to become a therapist, a psycho psychotherapist. Um, and uh, I, I almost completed the program, but it required an internship, which it just kind of fell at the time of the wrestling was picking up and stuff like that. So I just, I, my schedule didn't allow it. Um, but I wouldn't mind returning to that. I, I feel like, and I, I kind of like said this a few times, I, I'd love to advocate for mental health services, um, not only in our business, but just like athletes in general. I feel like there's a big gap there. There's a taboo, um, you know, for athletes like showing weakness in in seeking out mental health support. Um, but there's a lot of there's a lot of stress and pressures related directly to being competitive, and especially in like the world that we lived in, um, you know, sometimes it sometimes people need need an ear, and uh, I, I think that that's a discussion that could could be done with, with more vigor <laughs> I'd like to see that done more. And um, so, I mean, I, I don't, I'm not closing the door on, on um, my future plans at all in the wrestling business, or, you know, if I would return to commentary when I'm, when my body finally gives out here, <laughs> but, uh, but I, I'll, I'll be busy doing something to support others because I've had such a blessed life. I've I have all I wanted to be since I was a little girl was a pro wrestler and a mom. And I've got those wonderful things in front of me. And so any, any way I can support others, I'm just here for it. With, with your husband being an actor, is there any desire to try to uh, transfer over it into that area yourself? Or are you happy just letting Adam go do his thing? Adam's got it. I, <laughs> I, I wanted to be a wrestler, you know, and that's, that was my lane and I, that's where I'm happy. But, you know, I don't mind being married to the next Arnold Schwarzenegger, whatever. <laughs> <laughs>
Beth, the most proud meme I've ever sent was uh, after uh, Adam did his last scene with Vikings where he's standing on the well. I sent him a picture of him and Chimmel from years ago. And right next to it was a picture of him on the well. And I said, you're still working together. Congrats. Oh. And I sent it to Chimmel too. And I hope Chimmel gets this because he's going to pester me forever. I text Chimmel almost every day. Good, good. Please send him my my love and a big, big, big hug. You're the only one that loves him. I love him. I love him. I know. I get. I feel like I get hated on because I've got Chimmel love. <laughs> so you're the one. You're the it's one. Me. It's me. <laughs> well, everybody, everybody in the state of Florida blames me for for him living down here because I'm the one that told him about the area that he finally moved to. <laughs> oh, he's in Florida with you. Yeah, he's down in southern oh, south. Okay. He, he he down in that area got hit by a hurricane. Uh, oh. Of course, of course, I reached out to him. He said, "No, we're down there." I said, "Well, we're just concerned about you." He said. There was no we. He said you might have been concerned, but I said I know that Lakeville was concerned. About. <laughs> oh my gosh! I've had decades, decades, decades with Chimmel. So yes, I, <laughs> he's my thorn in the flesh. It's funny though, because he provokes it too. He's a little bit of a he provokes it. <laughs> you know, he's a very funny guy. He really he does. He actually, I think he enjoys the banter. He yes, he, he takes it very sure. well, and he gives it out very well too. He does. He does. I love me some Tony. <laughs> well, Beth, Beth, we go ahead, John. Go ahead, Jerry. We we really enjoy your time today. I mean, what a fascinating story that that you live. And uh, John was right in the beginning. There, there's a couple that that probably an ideal couple, and that's you and Adam. You both have tremendous amount of respect. The reason you have that tremendous amount of respect because you give that respect back to everybody. So we just want to thank you for this time that you've shared with us today. We, we hope you enjoyed it, and, and we, we wish you and Adam the best of luck down the line here, too. Thank you. What, what a lovely conversation. This did not feel like a podcast at all. It felt like friends chatting. <laughs> <laughs>